Just a quick reminder, and there's more about this in the bulletin, that tonight our assembly will meet in the Family Life Center, not in here. And I want to encourage many of you, maybe if you're not involved in the assembly in here on uh, Sunday night at 6, I want to encourage you to come to this as we use this opportunity to um, uh, do some teaching and with, about the, the Lord's Supper and how it reaches back to the Passover and through the Last Supper. And, you know, I just noticed again, again, this time of year is always so interesting. There's more and more emphasis on um, the events that surround Passover and the, um, the life of Christ. And I'm seeing more and more uh, shows being produced and more and more interest in this. And, of course, it'll all, I know, it'll all fade away in about a week uh, after Easter. But... Maybe it won't for everyone. And so let's use this as an opportunity to not only share faith, but to reaffirm faith as well. Uh, If you're one of our guests today, what you need to know is we've been studying judges uh, for the last uh, six or seven weeks. And we come to the end of the judges. But Samson, we noted last week, is the last of a series of 12 judges, bringers of justice. And yet the story continues beyond Samson. How does the story continue and what does the story look like if there are no judges? What if the people have God? No longer cry out for mercy because of an oppressor because they have become their own oppressors. What does it look like? What happens when the people of God The people who are supposed to be a light to all nations have become so dark and they've become so numb to evil and oppression that they take it for granted and they assume that that's just the way things are. What if there were no judges? What if there were no bringers of justice? How would the story go? Well, you would find very quickly that you're in a land where there is no rest. And you're among a people who may think they serve God, but they actually serve themselves by making idols of their own passions. And what we have at the end of Judges is the description of such a a, a land where there is no king and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And they fail to love God and they fail to love one another which are the two greatest commandments of our king. What you have in the last few chapters of Judges is a tale of two Levites who are supposed to be the priests. They're supposed to be the ones that teach the people how to serve God. And it ends with a horrible civil war among God's own people. Making a God that serves one's own desires about God, is the story of a man named Micah that you read about at the, in, in, in chapter 17 of Judges, really, in this, in this last section. Micah, and his name is, is very ironic because his name means, who is like God? And he makes his God that's like God According to Judges, he sets up a place to worship his own like-God deity. In chapter 17, we're told that this man Micah had a private chapel. 
He had made an ephod. That's a religious garment. He had made some teraphim idols, which were a particular kind of little household god. He had ordained one of his own sons to be his priest. This is do-it-yourself religion. I remember someone uh, talking to me one day. He was so frustrated by church. He was so frustrated by everything going on. He said, you know what? And he, was, he happened to be an educator. You need to know that so you'll get the joke. He goes, everybody who's frustrated with what I do, they just homeschool. I think I'm going to home church. Well, people have home church for generations. But Micah takes it to a new level because for him, he controls everything in his household worship of God. But it's really not the house of God, the house of Yahweh. It's the house of Micah, the house of the one who is like God, but not God. Meanwhile, there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, from a family of Judah. He was a Levite, but he was a stranger in Micah's town. He left that town, Bethlehem in Judah, seeking his fortune. And he got as far as the hill country of Ephraim, and he showed up at Micah's house. And Micah asked him, so where are you from? He said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. I'm on the road looking for a place to settle down. Micah said, stay here with me. Be my father and priest. I'll pay you ten pieces of silver a year. Whatever clothes you need, and I'll pay for all of your meals. And the Levite agreed and moved in with Micah. And the young man fit right in. He became one of the family. And Micah appointed the young Levite as his priest. And this all took place in Micah's house. And Micah said, now I know that God will make things go well for me. Why, I've got a Levite for a priest. It's his way of saying, surely now I've put everything in place. I mean, I've got a Levite priest. Not just one of my own kids, but I've got a Levite. The way we would say that up north of here, up, in the, up on the Boston Mountains, is we'd say, we've got a bona fide, real deal, grade A priest, okay? You know, it's the real thing. I've got a Levite. How is it that Micah thinks that this means that he's got God's blessing? How is it that Micah thinks that setting up his own little do-it-yourself religion actually is blessed by God? I mean, Micah is going to do whatever Micah wants to do. According to Judges, the reason is that there was no king. And because there was no king, everyone does what seems right in his or her own eyes. Well, everything is, I guess, you know, why should we discount Micah? I mean, he's got a Levite for a priest. He's got his own little idol. You know, we might say today, he's not hurting anyone. Let him have his own little household idol there. The Levite saw a good opportunity. He's getting taken care of. What could be wrong? Well, maybe they're not hurting anybody. The thing is, what do you do when somebody more powerful somebody tougher, somebody bigger and with more resources comes along and takes away your bona fide Levite priest. What do you do then? Well, that's exactly what happens. We read on in the story, and skipping ahead to the next chapter, verse 14, 
there are five men, Danites. They're from the tribe of Dan. They're looking for a place to live because they haven't settled in the land yet. And so they're looking for a place that's easy pickings. They're looking for a place where they can go in and they can take over. They send out five of their toughest guys. Five warriors who stumble across Micah's house and they find the Levite. And they, they, knowing that the Levite is there and can give a blessing from God, they seek the blessing that they want and the man gives it to them. Finally, they come back with 600 of their men because they see that there's a town called Laish. And they know that they can take over Laish because the people there are weak. So they say, listen, why, why should we do this alone? The five men who had earlier been there and explored the country of Laish told their 600 companions, did you know that there is a place where there is an ephod? There's teraphim idols. There's a cast god sculpture. They're in those buildings. What do you think? You want to do something about that? I mean, along the way, if you're going to take land, if you're going to take people's money... Why not take their religious artifacts too? Because that can only serve you well. So they turned off the road. They went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's house. They asked him how it was going. The 600 Danites, all well-armed, stood guard at the entrance to the gate. And the five scouts who had gone to explore the land went in. They took the carved idol. They took the religious garments. They took the teraphim idol. They took the God sculpture. The priest was standing at the gate with the 600 armed men. And when the five men went into Micah's house and they took all the the religious artifacts, the priest said to them, what do you think you're doing? And they said, hush, don't make a sound. Come with us. You be our father and priest. Which is more important, that you be a priest to one man or you can become priest to a whole tribe and clan in Israel. And the Levite, once again, seeing the opportunity, jumps at the chance. So he takes it and he falls in with the troops. They turned away, they set out. They were putting the children and the cattle and the gear in the lead of their party. And they were well on their way from Micah's house. And then Micah and his neighbors got together. And they overtook these these Danite raiders. And they shouted at them. And that's when the Danites turned around and said, What's all the noise about? Micah said, You took my God. You took the God I made. Now now stop right there. Do you understand how ridiculous that language is? People can take a lot of things from you. You When you're a kid, somebody can take your toys. They can take your candy bar. Somebody can rob your house. Somebody can steal your car. But you can't take someone's God away. Not if the God has something to say about it. Not if God is truly God. But this isn't the house of God. This is the house of one who's kind of like God. Micah's very upset because he's lost his little household religion. Well, what's he going to do about it? He's making his case. He's demanding justice. It's mine. I made it. You took it from me. You're stealing. But the Danites answered, don't yell at us. You might provoke some bad-tempered men to attack you, and you'll end up an army of dead men. The Danites went on their way. Micah saw that he didn't stand a chance against their arms. He turned back and went home. And so they took the things that Micah had made, along with his priest. They arrived at Laish, a city of quiet and unsuspecting people. 
They massacred the people and they burned down the city. And then they set up Micah's little household religion and made it their own. Well, who's to say they can't do that? Because after all, there was no king and you can do whatever's right in your own eyes. Might makes right in this world. A world without justice. A world without bringers of justice. A world where gods are things that can be stolen. The Levite goes happily on his way serving the larger group because he's just available for hire to the highest bidder. The man who is supposed to be teaching. How many commandments of the Ten Commandments have been broken in the story of Micah and these Danite warriors? You can go through the list. You're probably, if, I'll let you do that. That's your homework. But you can probably get close to all ten I'm sure you can do better than 50%. There's stealing. There's idolatry. There's lying. But the man who's supposed to be teaching them God's law is available to whoever wants to hire him out and use him to make their own religion in their own image. We were made in the image of God. It's not the other way around. God is not made in our image. He's not a projection of our desires. Not the true and living God. In the house of Micah, they worship one who's like God. They even use God's name. They even use God's uh, Levites, his priests. They even use the, the systems and the structures. You can have everything in place, but you're really not worshiping God. You can do everything according to the rules, according to the procedures, but that doesn't mean you're really worshiping God. Because in the house of God, you don't have a God that can be stolen or a God who's made in our image. The Levite says whatever his donors want to hear. Should they go to war against Laish, that town of quiet and unsuspecting people? Sure. They, the, the Levite knows where his bread is buttered, and so he's going to say whatever they need him to say. Whatever blessing they need, the Levite has become a chaplain to these Danites to give them kind of a, a, a little you know, blessing over whatever it is that they want to do. He's actually a bad priest. He's a bad chaplain. But he becomes their religious totem that gives them what, a, a sense of, well, God blesses whatever it is that we want to do. And the massacre at Laish is given a divine approval by a false priest. When you're reading through Judges, if you're not careful, it sounds like God says it's okay for the Danites to take Laish. You can't be sure of that. The Levite said that God said it was okay. That doesn't mean that God thinks it's okay at all. In fact, the justice of God would say that it should not have happened like that. Read the first part of Judges and you'll see where God tells them how they are supposed to take the land. The days of the Levite, where there is no king, and people do whatever is right in their own eyes. It'd be nice to believe that that's just ancient history. But there have been massacres throughout history. And there have been massacres that have been given divine approval. There have been people who serve God like God, and it's caused people to be hurt. It's caused people to be 
destroyed. Years ago, a man told me, and this is long ago, a different time, a different place. But a man told me about his mission group and how they uprooted an established church in a third world country. They uprooted it and they relocated it. And the reason they did that was because it was more convenient for their mission project. Now I ask you, what they may have they may have been well intentioned, it may have been good, but was that serving God? How many people were disrupted? How many people may have had their faith ruined just because it was more convenient for the mightier and stronger and more powerful people to come in and do their good deeds in the name of God? Really, they were doing it in the name of one like God but not God. I've been at ministry long enough now that I've known over and over again many stories of ministers who struggle to get noticed and wonder why they aren't getting the fame and fortune of their heroes. A long time ago when I was young, uh, there was a peer who wanted to know when he was going to get recognized. And he asked the table. It was a question I would have never asked. And, and I, was, I was shocked. I remember the feeling of shock when he asked a, a group at the table, when will me and my generation, when will we get recognized and noticed? When do we get to be involved in the decision making? No one knew how to answer that question. Because it was motivated by personal ambition and not by service. It's very hard to give an answer to a question that's not formed correctly. Looking back and thinking about it, I keep thinking the only appropriate answer to that would, would be as long as you have that attitude, the answer is you will never be involved. But it happened in the days of the Levite. It can still happen today. It's not just ministers. I've known churches and I've known church leaders who've reduced ministers to And I've heard these words spoken before. Disposable appliances. Just replace them like a light bulb. When we have that kind of attitude towards discipleship and following God, then we're really not setting up the house of Yahweh. We're setting up the house of one like Yahweh. And it has all of the right pieces in place and all of the right people standing in the right place. We're not worshiping a God who made us in His image where we can be, find ourselves worshiping gods that we've made in our own image. But I told you this is a tale of two Levites. We go from the house of Micah to the story of another Levite. Micah, in doing what he did, dishonored not only himself, but he dishonored God. And speaking of honor, the story of the other Levite has to do with his honor. There was another Levite. This Levite had a concubine. A concubine is a backup wife. It's a little more than a mistress, but a little less than a wife. It's really a kind of a slavery A woman's family puts her into the status of concubine and now this man takes care of her and the family loses all ability to 
to advocate for her justice. And this, this Levite has mistreated this concubine, and, he's, and she's run away. She's gone to her father's house to get away from him, but he has brought her back. And the father has to give her back because she belongs to that Levite. It's not the way things are supposed to be. But you know what they've been saying all along. There was no king, so everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. Now that he has recovered his concubine who ran away from him, he retrieved her. He's heading back to his own home, and he has to find a place to stay. And he avoids the town of Jebus because, well, because it's filled with inhospitable foreigners, and you don't want to stay in a place with those inhospitable foreigners. So you're going to go on to the town of Gibeah, where you're going to find your own people. Your own kinfolk, tribesmen just like you, he expects to find hospitality there. The Levite went and sat down in the town square, says the text, and no one invited them in to spend the night. But late in the evening, an old man came in from his day's work in the fields. Which, by the way, a man that old should not be working in the fields his family or the townsfolk should be caring for him. That's a sign of how bad this town is. This old man was from the hill country of Ephraim and he lived temporarily in Gibeah. He's a stranger in this town where all the local citizens were Benjaminites. And when the old man looked up and saw the traveler in the town square, he said, where are you going and where are you from? And the Levite said, we're just passing through. We're coming from Bethlehem on our way to a remote spot in the hills of Ephraim. I've come from there. I've just made a trip to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm on my way back home. But no one has invited us in for the night. We wouldn't be any trouble. We have food. We have straw for the donkeys, bread and wine for the woman, the young man, and me, We don't need anything. The old man said, it's going to be all right. I'll take care of you. You aren't going to spend the night in the town square. He's actually saying, please don't spend the night in the town square. Because the inhospitality, the the inhospitable nature of the town of Gibeah is a shame to everyone. And the old man sees the shame that no one has offered them aid. No one has offered them comfort. No one has offered them hospitality. And so he doesn't want to be offensive. He's a visitor to that town, but has become a resident. And so he says, please don't spend the night out here where it would bring shame on us, but come to my house. He took them home. He fed their animals. He washed them up and they sat down for a good meal. But what was bad enough, a lack of hospitality, soon gets worse because of the presence of hostility when you have an over-exuberant welcoming committee that come to the house of the old man. While they were enjoying themselves, the men of the city, a perverse lot, surrounded the house. They started pounding on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house so that we may have our way with him. And the man, the master of the house, the old man said to them, no, my brothers, 
Don't act so wickedly. Since this man is my guest, do not do this vile thing. Here are my, here's my virgin daughter. Here's this man's concubine. Let me bring them out. Ravish them. Do whatever you want to them. But against this man, don't do such a vile thing. But the men would not listen to him. i got to stop right there. Because you may not have ever known that this was in the Bible. And I can tell you that every time I read this, and even working on these pictures, it's painful. You may be thinking like I am, okay, wait. It's fine to say, do not do this vile thing. But to give up your own daughter? To give up the concubine? Just to keep them from doing that? Is that right? No, it's not right. And the real problem here is not just the perverse attitude of these men. The fact that they want to have their way with the other man. It's not any better that they should be given a woman to victimize. But you know what's going on? What the text has been telling us all along. There's no king, so everyone does what seems right in their own eyes. And the old man thinks, well, at least we won't do something as shameful as Sodom or Gomorrah where the inhospitality was so bad that it became hospitality, that it became a crime against humanity. But note this, before the old man can even persuade them at all, the Levite seized his concubine and threw her out to them and they abused her all through the night until morning. Learned a new word today. Uxorcide. It means the, the death, the killing of a wife. I don't even know that that really applies here though because this isn't his wife. This is just his concubine. But whatever it is, he has literally turned her into meat to throw at metaphorical wolves. The next part of the story gets even... This man is no hero. Just before dawn, the men of the city let her go. The woman came back and fell at the door of the house where her master was sleeping. And when the sun rose, there she was. It was morning. Her master got up, opened the door to continue his journey. And there she was, his concubine, crumpled in a heap at the door, her hand on the threshold. And he said, get up, let's get going. And there's no answer. I used to think that this event stirred something in the Levite. I used to think that this caused him, and if you go on and read the story, he takes the dead body of the concubine. He cuts it into 12 pieces, sends it to the tribal leaders of Israel, and he says, this is how bad things have gotten. We've got to do something because of the crime and the evil in Gibeah. But he's not upset over what they've done with the concubine. He's not upset 
because of the sexual sins going on in this city. He's upset about his honor. They dishonored him. They dishonored him by not showing hospitality in Gibeah. They dishonored him by approaching him and wanting to have their way. They dishonored him by what they did to a woman that he treated like property. And now he wants his honor back. He wants them to defend his honor. And he doesn't want justice because a civil war ensues. He asked the question, even though he has the wrong answer, how did this evil happen? Remember, too, if, if, you're, if you're trying to get him off the hook and say, yeah, well, yeah, but you know, he was upset after that happened, who pushed her out the door? He did. Who slept through the night while the crime was going on? He did. I don't think he changes that quickly. Who's the one that walks out there, sees her in the state that she's in, and says, get up, let's get going? The Levite. The one who should be teaching the people of God how God wants them to behave. And now he teaches the people of God how to get engaged in a civil war that is so bloody. Thousands, tens of thousands die on each side. And they even think that they're getting God's approval for it. But here's the thing. You can read that text and you'll think, well, it sounds like God is pushing them into civil war. Pay attention to the questions they ask. They don't ask God, God, should we go to war against our brothers? They just say, God, we're going to war against our brothers. We want to know who should start the fight. When you ask God questions like that, God's not going to give you the answer that you deserve. And who's to say, after their idolatry, that they're even asking God, or they're hearing God? I don't think they're listening to God at all. How did this evil happen? The Levite's asking the right question. He arrives at the wrong solution. His solution is war, which he assumes is sanctioned by God. The reason the evil happens, as we've been told more than once, is because they have no king, so everyone does what seems right. In their own eyes. How did this happen? Let's go a little further with that question. First of all, they cared more about their own honor than they did about honoring God. All honor and all glory belongs to God. That's one of the affirmations in Scripture. It's one of the affirmations in Revelation. It's in the songs that we sing, even. And one of the things I want to encourage, because this is not just ancient history. We've got to be very careful That we're not concerned about the honor and glory of the church above the honor and glory of God. And I'm going to warn you, sometimes we end up taking God out of the blank and we fill in church where only God should be in that sentence. We honor the church sometimes where only God should be honored. Now you may say, wait a second, have you got a problem with the church? No, it's just that I know who the church is. The church is us. We are the church, not some institution outside of us. And the church's purpose in this world is to bring honor and glory to God. Jesus Christ himself did not come to glorify himself. He came to humble himself. And if our Lord Jesus Christ 
will not seek honor and glory on his own. Why should we, the church, do that? Doesn't seem appropriate, does it? You say, how do we do that? Well, sometimes we put church in the place of God. There have been times in history when we have been rude, we have been unkind, we have been unjust to people. We have sacrificed people. We've thrown them out the door. Why? Because we're worried about what the world will think. Generations of ministry, and I've seen how we've dealt, just as an example, just as an example, and it's not true everywhere, but it has been true in places. Where people and families who've been through the pain and tragedy of divorce have been treated like unwelcome guests in the house. Why? Because we're worried about what the world will think. We're worried about what the people outside the church will think. Have we not read Scripture? Have we not heard the teaching of Jesus? Why are we so concerned about what the world will think? Why are we so concerned about our reputation with the world? Jesus says that he couldn't even control his reputation with the world. Ask any celebrity. Ask any politico out there right now. Ask them how easy it is to manage your reputation in this fickle world. One day your stock is up, the next day your stock is down. One day everybody pays attention to you, the next day they find a scandal on you, and if they can't find one, they'll make it up. Now I ask you, church, why are we so concerned to get a good reputation, to get good marks from the world when the world will throw us out the door? And why do we throw other people out and treat them so unkindly? Because we're trying to preserve our honor let's stop worrying about defending our honor and let's just honor God and if we do then we will be serving the one who makes all things right how does this evil happen in a land it happens in a land when people are divided by their own self-interest and desires The story in Judges of the Levite and his concubine is reminiscent of something that happened 41 years ago, in March 1964. I guess it's 51 years ago. Catherine Susan Kitty Genovese was stabbed to death by Winston Mosley in Kew Gardens, New York. Reports say there may have been up to 37 witnesses who chose not to get involved even though they could hear her cries for help. Sometimes, you know, in this day, the word hate is used so frequently. If you disagree with somebody, you're a hater. You know, if you, if you just tell someone that that's such and such is not your favorite movie, you don't like that music, you become a hater. You're a hater. I mean, to hold a different opinion, you're a hater. We use the word hate so casually but sometimes the opposite of love is not hate sometimes the opposite of love is apathy to not care when we should when we don't care about justice when we don't care about doing the right thing when we are consumed with getting what we want people get hurt people die and souls are lost Clinton J. McCann is a commentator on the book of Judges, and I'm greatly indebted to him in this series. He says that the book of Judges 
communicates about a time in history where there are these problems. There's tension and strife between rival groups, especially in the Middle East. There are disputes over land and territory. There is uncertainty over the roles of men and women. There are power-hungry political leaders and leaders who use women. There, are, there is child abuse. There is spouse abuse. There is senseless and excessive violence. There's infidelity. There is excessive individualism. There's moral confusion. And there's social chaos. Now, the question is, what time and what place is he describing? Is it the era of the judges? Or could it be any time or place? Could it be right now? I guarantee you those things that we've mentioned. You've been concerned about some of those things this week. You spend time concerned about those things every day. In such an age where those things are the problem, then the message of the book of Judges, the message of Scripture is, we need a king. We need a monarch. We need a leader who is the standard of justice, of what is right. But do we have a king? I mean, this is America. We're democratic. We elect our leaders. We complain about them, and then we elect a new bunch to complain about. Come on. The people rule. Do we have a king? Would that really work here? Maybe a king is a silly old idea. Well, here's the truth. We do have a king. And the thing is, you and I weren't asked our opinion about having a king. Because you do not elect kings. They're not elected. In the truest sense, a king is appointed by God. Now, throughout history, there have been many kings who have claimed that they've been appointed by God, and they haven't been. But Jesus Christ, who sought no glory of his own, Jesus Christ, who would not defend his own honor, was proclaimed king at his birth, affirmed king during his life, and when he rose from death on the cross... After being in the tomb, God affirmed him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That means, by the way, that phrase which we drop so casually means king over all kings, Lord over all lords. That means he is the highest authority on earth. And he lives forever. He's the rule. He's the standard. He then becomes the judge of what is right. And you do not elect a king... What you do is you swear loyalty to a king. Because you end up with two choices. You can either be loyal and serve that king, or you can find yourself in a state of rebellion. The good news again is that Jesus Christ does not believe that might makes right. Jesus Christ calls all of us to swear our loyalty to him because he is a far better ruler than any other ruler available. He is a far better standard of justice than any other standard available. Even our own selfish desires. We have a king. And the best news that we can hear is that if we want things to be right, if we look at a world that's out of whack and we want things to be right, then swear your loyalty to this king and do what is right. Not in your own eyes, but in his eyes. We're going to stand, we're going to sing this song. 
One of the things that we do at this time in our worship service is we make affirmation. We make affirmation that Jesus is King. When someone is baptized into Christ, they are saying, my loyalty belongs to the Lord and I, I surrender myself. We die to self and we live for Christ. When we have prayers, people come and they appeal to the King for justice. They appeal to the King for goodness. The good news again is this, that Jesus Christ invites us to come to Him. He is a welcoming king. He's a king who leads his people. He knows that his sheep need to be fed. So you come to a moment where there is grace. And even in a world that can be in turmoil, you have a refuge in the king who says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. And what happens then? You find rest. When there is no king, the land has no rest. When there is no justice, the land has no rest. But when there is a king who does what is right, there is rest. Let's stand. Let's sing together. If you want to come and, 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 and seek the prayers of the elders, they'll be down front. They'll be in room 100. Let's, let's declare our loyalty to the king.